Hey, and welcome back to Grace Talks, a Christian's women's podcast that studies the Bible, the women in it, and applies it to our lives today. If you've made it this far, congrats. After this week, we will have read through and studied a whole book of the Bible together. Next week, I'll have a Christmas episode coming out, and then we'll be starting off 2022 with new women of the Bible, new real talks, and new topics. Please feel free to reach out with questions you may have or topics that you want to hear more about. For now, we have Esther's story to continue. This is the last shout out to Beth Moore for her Bible study of Esther when it helped me study it the first time. So to catch back up, remember, Haman has removed himself as a threat. The king allowed Esther and Mordecai to create a second edict, allowing Jews to protect themselves on the same day Haman's evil edict allowed them to be attacked and annihilated. A whole bunch of celebrating was happening. So what could be left in our story? It sounds like happily ever after. Well, we need to jump forward a few months in the story to find out how well the Jews protected themselves. So Esther chapter 9 verses 1 through 15 reads like this. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Visatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews and Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews and Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. A gruesome start to today's episode, I won't lie. Let's start off with what the Jews did not do on those two days that they were allowed to carry out Esther's edict. A hint, look at the last phrase of Esther 8.11. Why do you think they did not plunder like they were given the right to, like their enemies would have done? Let's first look at Romans 12, 17 through 21. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. So the whole not plundering thing shows a level of self-control and mercy. Now, you might hear me say that and go, um, Grace, did they not just kill a total of 800 men in two days? Yeah, they did. But keep in mind that they're only allowed to attack in self-defense against those people following the evil edict. And Haman's edict encouraged the death and annihilation of every single Jew, man, woman, and child. Haman's edict also encouraged plundering the Jews' possessions after they were massacred. The Jews did not seek out the death of innocents or of the families of the men that fought against them. They did not plunder these people's possessions, likely leaving them for the widows and orphans those men left behind. The other thing to take into contextual consideration is the kind of holy war that this time of action finally ended. Recall that Haman's sons were killed in this process. That wasn't just some kind of excessive revenge. Long story super short, back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, there was a guy named King Saul, okay, and he made an error. He'd go on, he would later on make quite a few more errors, but that isn't the point of our story today. King Saul was supposed to wipe out an evil nation, and he mostly did, but he took their plunder and he allowed one of the guys from that nation to live, both of which he was not supposed to do. And that guy he allowed to live was named Agag. Haman is called an Agagite, which is an assumed descendant of Agag. If Saul had listened to God's instructions, Haman's evil lineage would have been cut off at the root a long time prior. So as gory as all of this sounds, the Jews were not acting on their own behalf. They were acting on behalf of God, which you can see through their self-control. The self-control King Saul did not have in 1 Samuel when he plundered that evil nation back then. Now, this might be the moment that you wonder, okay, cool. What does that have to do with me today? Well, getting even in vengeful violence are a constant in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. So what changed? Well, to put it plainly, because we now get to receive love in place of wrath, we should show others our love instead of our wrath. When Noah's world was wicked, God sent a flood. 2,000 years ago, when the world was still wicked, God sent his son. This transforms how we should respond from an eye for an eye into mercy and forgiveness of those that sometimes aren't that worthy of it because we weren't worthy either, but here we are still loved. So continuing on in Esther chapter nine, verses 16 through 19, it says, meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. So Haman's edict called for genocide, yet in the end, they experienced a landslide victory and proved to all of vast Persia that an unseen hand fought for the Israelites. And also notice what day the Jews chose to celebrate, not on the day of battle and their victory, but the day of their rest after facing evil and the threat of death. These little details we tend to skip over when we read our Bible matter so much. In fact, check this out. The word presence in Esther 9.19 shares the same root word as Psalm 16.5-6, where it says, portion or lot. That use of the word lot was also used for Esther 3.7. You know, remember Haman cast his lot and thought that the pagan gods had his back, but then we bring back and remember 
Proverbs 16.33 that said, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's so cool, these little things that we might not know about if we don't look a little deeper into the context of what we're reading. So cool. And then continuing on into Esther 9, 20 through 22, it says, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar. As the time when Jews got relief from their enemy and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Read verse 22 carefully if you have your Bible with you. What specific things does it say were turned? Sorrow turned into joy. Mourning turned into celebration. Psalm 30, 10 through 12 says, Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. We talked last time about the befores and afters God creates in our lives. Here's another example of what God can turn around, wailing to dancing, sackcloths and ashes to garments of joy, so much joy. God is the king of taking the tragedies of mankind and turning them around, bringing goodness out of darkness. Every time the Lord transforms a situation or a person, there is a reason to celebrate. That's why Mordecai writes to everyone and tells them to set aside a day of feasting and celebration to honor what God did for them. Jewish customs still celebrate to this day, and they call it Purim. As Christians, we have annual celebrations as well. Just like the Jews of Persia, we've been saved from a sweeping sentence of death. But our edict was nailed on a cross and was sealed with Jesus's death instead of a signet ring. Our celebration of our victory should include others in the same way Mordecai instructed Jews to give presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. When we've been blessed, we should share our blessings with others. And not just the financially poor, but also the poor of spirit. Share about Jesus. He is our portion that never runs out, no matter how much of him we give away. In fact, it reminds me a lot of when Jesus fed the 5,000 in Matthew 14, 13 through 21. I encourage you to read that story and visualize God's love as the fish and the bread. It just, it does not run out. Even within you, it doesn't run out. And then it continues on in Esther chapter 9, verses 23 through chapter 10, verse 3. And, and that's the end of the book of Esther. It says, so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. 
These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all of his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Medea and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Esther and Mordecai worked for the good of their people with the help of the Lord. They're excellent models of Philippians 2, 3 through 4, which says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And I mean, that was Esther. She said that she was willing to die to be able to save her people. She did not put herself first. She was a queen. She was in luxury. No one knew she was of Jewish origin. She could have just turned a blind eye, but she didn't. She stood up for what was right. She sacrificed herself, risked sacrificing herself. And look at how it turned out. So what do we take away from the book of Esther? Well, I mean, a lot, because I spent nine episodes on it, and that's just moving super quickly through everything. But application is important. We don't want to miss out on being used by God because we didn't put into practice the things we learned while reading his word. And you can and you will be used by God at hopefully many points of your life. Acts 2, 17, 18 tells us, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Catch that? Old and young, men and women, sons and daughters are called to be used by God, to be filled up with the spirit. Ephesians 1.11 tells us, in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Philippians 2.13 tells us, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So we have this opportunity to pursue a purpose. When we're asked that difficult philosophical question, why am I here? We actually have an answer. We are chosen children of God. He has plans for our lives. And it's a plan that is impossible to derail. He knows every decision that you have made and will make, every mistake you have made and will make. You cannot thwart the purpose and the will of a perfect God. Mordecai told Esther back in chapter four that the Lord could find another way to work out his will. But how cool would it be to have him use you? Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
God not only promises that he works out everything, Ephesians 1.11, according to his good purpose, Philippians 2.13, he promises that in all things, God will work for our good, Romans 8.28. As Beth Moore put it in her study, Ephesians 1.11 tells us God's providence is at work universally. Philippians 2.13 tells us that God's providence is at work in us personally. And Romans 8.28 tells us that God's providence is at work beneficially. Esther's story is awesome. It's wonderful. But even more wonderful is the fact that we have our own stories and our story isn't over. One day we will, like Esther, approach a king, the king. We are going to hear our story narrated. And thanks to Jesus Christ, our savior, we will have a chance to approach our king. Revelations 4, 10 through 11 says, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they were created and have their being. So love God, choose to be used by him and see the harvest. The fruit that you bear on earth just might be the jewels that fill up the crown you will get to place at his feet in heaven. That's everything that I have for today. I have absolutely loved getting to dive deep into Esther with you. Don't forget that these episodes are available as a YouTube video, a podcast, and a blog. And any kind of interaction with those platforms boosts the reach that my little ministry makes. So I hope that you join next time to celebrate Christmas with me. As usual, if you have any questions about today's episodes, the Bible, or anything else, I would be happy to answer as best as I can. If you haven't heard it today, God loves you. I love you. You are important. You have worth. And you have a purpose. I'm signing off. Bye.